Hey, if you got a Bible, Matthew chapter 22 is where we're going to be. If you're a guest with us, thank you so much for being here. Uh, my kind of philosophy is, on church is that uh, it should look way more like a party than a funeral because we have something to celebrate, uh, mainly the fact that Jesus came to change our lives. So uh, if you're a guest, thanks for being here. It's fifth Sunday, which we like to uh, allow our kids into service to kind of get to see what mom and dad do on fifth Sunday. So I'm completely aware of the situation I found myself in, and uh, it's okay. It's going to be fine. So you can take a deep breath if you got your kids in service. Nobody's going to look at you weird or anything like that. We're glad they are joining us. Uh, We're closing out this series of messages called FAQ with perhaps uh, maybe the most frequently asked question within all Christianity, uh, which is, how does following Jesus affect my day-to-day life? Uh, Like on a a normal day, I've committed my life to Christ. What does that even look like at school, at work, uh, you know, at home? Does Jesus really make a difference in the things that I'm trying to do every day? I think it's it's a worthwhile question because we don't want to come across as hypocritical. It's rather popular for folks to say, well, I could never be a Christian. They're just a bunch of hypocrites, which in fairness, we're all hypocrites on some level. You know, King Climate Change himself, Leonardo DiCaprio, is flying his private jet all around this earth right now, talking about needing to reduce reduce his carbon footprint, uh, you know, which is hypocritical. Uh, In 2004, there was a a big campaign, you might remember, it was called Vote or Die, and the spokesman of the campaign didn't vote, or for the record, die, either. She was completely fine. She just decided that's not something she wanted to do. So my point is, we're all hypocrites on some level. The question is, are you authentic in your hypocrisy? Now that might seem paradoxical because, no, if you're a hypocrite, then of course you're not being authentic. That's the whole definition of hypocrisy. But what I'm trying to get at this morning is, of course we all do things we know we shouldn't. What I want to know is, is there something we're supposed to be doing? Like, is there one thing above all the other things that God says, no, above everything else, this is what you're supposed to be doing? At some point in time, did Jesus reach into the secret vault, pass the KFC recipe, pass the Coca-Cola recipe, because that's not fit for our eyes, but did he find the, uh, the secret formula for following him, and did he give us those instructions? And the answer is, yes, of course, he did that. It's great news for all of us this morning. So here's what I want you to write down as we get ready this morning. Life is easy, but it's not simple. It's my entire message in one sentence. Life is easy, but it's not simple. So if you uh, were drugged here this morning against your will and uh, you didn't want to come to church, or you're just trying to get your friend to quit bothering you about coming, you're like, yes, I'll just come with you. That this one time, That's the, what we're going to spend the next 30 minutes chatting about is how life is simple, but it's not easy. So if you came and your life is completely easy, uh, like there's no hardship in life. When you look at stuff, it's like there's nothing cluttered. There's no, uh, you know, busyness in any sort of way, then this message is not going to apply to you, okay? So you can just uh, stare blankly at me and pretend like you're listening, which is what a lot of you will be doing anyway, so you'll fit right in uh, with the people around you. But uh, if you can't seem to mind the business of your busyness, then that's what I want to help you with this morning. We're going to find this in Matthew 22. We're going to pick it up in verse 34. 
where it reads, When the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Pause. Before we read the question, how many of you all know this is about to go bad? Okay, uh, trapping Jesus is a lot like trying to trap Bigfoot. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, Frank, I think we got him. No, no, you did not. Um, uh, trying to trick Jesus, Jesus with a question is like when my kids try and trick me with a riddle. You know, I, what has hands but no arms, a face but no eyes? Come on, kid, you can't come, you can't come at me with that. That's a clock. I know what you're trying, you know? Uh, so you're going to have to do a lot better with your riddles than that. This is, this is what we're going to find with Jesus. But uh, it's also worth pointing out before we look at the question, who these people are that are trying to trap and trick Jesus. There's three main uh, religious groups within Jerusalem at this time, specifically within Judaism. There's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and also the Essenes. Uh, we don't get to read too much about the Essenes because they looked around at Jerusalem uh, during the day and they thought it was way too evil. They were like, nah, we're, we're getting out of here. So they, they jetted out. Peace, we're, we're going to go out into the desert and hang out, you know, in a van down by the Jordan River, uh, as it were. So that's them. But Pharisees and Sadducees, we get to read quite a bit about them within Scripture because they're kind of the controlling body within uh, Judaism. Uh, Keep in mind, most people can't read or write during this point of history. So these are the guys who would tell everybody else what Scripture says, what the Torah commands, who God is, you know, what He asks of their life. They're experts in the law, and and not just the law uh, that we would think of, the Ten Commandments. They're actually experts in the 613 laws uh, that they tried to practice every single day. A a large swath of them were invented by the Pharisees and Sadducees as well. They were trying to do what we like to do often today. They're trying to legislate morality within people, but it didn't work. The most important thing, though, that you need to realize about the P's and the S's uh, during this time is that they were more concerned with their power than they were with people. And because of that, because the only thing they were interested in was, uh, was in power, uh, they were often owned by Jesus in these conversations because Jesus had no interest in power. You can read it for yourselves. He was just savage in his response to some of these people. It, it rarely went well for them because uh, Jesus was not concerned with power. He was not concerned with religion. Jesus came for a relationship. Uh, first with you and his heavenly father, and then uh, you and each other as we're about to read. But one of these dudes, Pharisee, an expert in the law, he comes to Jesus with this leading question, hoping to trick him, hoping to trap him. I'm nervous. What's going to happen? Verse 36, teacher, riddle me this, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Second, equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Mic drop. That's what Jesus just did right there. 
ironically, Jesus was like, oh no, excuse me, I'm going to pick up this microphone. I'm going to ask you all a question, Pharisees and Sadducees. While we're on the topic of asking easy questions, uh, you answer me this. He asks them a question and they're like, "Um," verse 46, no one could answer him. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus put the kibosh on that. Uh, instead of uh, trying to answer any more questions, the Pharisees and Sadducees just decided it would be easier to kill Jesus. Uh, they knew that they looked foolish, so that's what happens when you try and take away people's power. They don't like that very much. But you can see the setup. An expert in the law who believes that all laws are important is trying to trap Jesus by asking him, what's the greatest command in all of Scripture? Because this man believes they're all equally important. All the laws, all 613 of them, equally valid. And so he's saying, well, which one's most important? Because if Jesus says all of them, they've got him. How? Because Jesus didn't keep all the laws. You remember that time he healed that brother on the Sabbath? Uh, that was against the law, albeit it was never forbidden by God. It was just part of this, you know, 613 created laws that man invented for themselves. But uh, when you're an expert in the law, this is how you get your convictions, technicalities. Uh, and that's what they were trying to do with Jesus. So the expectation was Jesus is going to say all of it, and they're going to be like, arrest this man, take him out of our presence. But instead, Jesus says, oh, that's easy. The greatest law, the greatest command, that's love God and love other people. Everything is dependent upon those two things. And they're like, it! he got us again. And so then they were all upset. But again, that's my whole point this morning. Life's simple. I love God and love other people. It's just not easy. But let me ask you a question this morning. How are you doing at this greatest command? How are you doing at loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? How are you doing at that and loving your neighbor as yourself? Because my fear for everyone coming in to our service this morning, my fear for anyone watching online is that they have become like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're an expert in something that doesn't really matter. I like how D.L. Moody said it. He said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. Despite what you've heard, despite what you believe, uh, what really matters is not what college your kids get into. What really matters is not the scholarship level they get financed at or what number follows the letters NCAA in the institution that they're enrolled in. What matters is not that they're well-rounded or that they take piano lessons or they're in dance and karate and uh, curling and basketball and we got to have you know this on Monday and this on Friday. What really matters is not that you're giving them every single opportunity. What matters is do they love the Lord? Do they serve the Lord? That's what's most important in a life. Joshua, after Moses, talks about this. He says, choose who you're going to serve this day. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. 
We're going to do what He commands. We're going to follow after Him wholeheartedly. We're going to make coming to church a priority despite the fact that the only time they can play in that game is Sunday at 10 a.m. because my kids are going to know that we're putting God first and we're going to chase after Him with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, and our whole strength. You might be interested to find out that um, according to a, a famous research group called Barna, that most commitments to Christ happen before age 14. At age 18, that number drops. At age 21, that number drops. And at age 30, that number plummets because it's so hard to make a change the older you get. Uh, it's why we've got to be passionate about teaching our kids what it means to follow Jesus. It's why we have to be passionate about the reason God gave us some rules to follow is so that we could find fullness of life. The greatest lie the devil is trying to get you to believe is that God's trying to keep something from you. It's not true. God has your best interest in mind. Jesus says, I came to this earth so you might have life and have it to the full. God wants you to experience joy. He wants you to find fullness of life. You think, yeah, pastor, that's why we're here. Teach these kids under 14 about Jesus. You, you know, you, you're the guy. Au contraire, mon frere. Uh, you might be interested to find out that Jesus is quoting here in Matthew chapter 22. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema. All practicing Jews still recite this every single morning before they start their day. I'll read it to you. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Sound familiar? Uh, verse 6, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, the most important assignment that you have is to communicate to your children that, that this is a home of love and this is a place where love is not just communicated, but it's also demonstrated. Jesus implies in Matthew 22 what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 6 that you're supposed to talk to your children again and again and again when you're on the road, before you go to work, at home, all the time. You're supposed to write this on the doorpost. You're supposed to write this on uh, your house before you go to bed, when you wake up. Uh, you can't take someone somewhere you've never been yourself. You know, you, gotta, you can't lead somebody to Jesus if you don't know Jesus yourself. Yet here's what's so perplexing about all this to me. And Moses and Jesus both say that our first job is to love. In fact, you, uh, they say you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You must love. Uh, look at your neighbor and say, you must love. You must love. Uh, how do you command love? Like, how do you must love? Isn't love a feeling? Isn't love the butterflies in your, your stomach? Isn't love following your heart? Just listen to your heart. 
Jot this down if you're taking notes. Here's what you need to know about commanding love. This is what must love means. Love is sometimes an emotion, but love is always an action. Love is sometimes what you do or what you feel. Love is sometimes what you feel. Love is always what you do. It's why uh, following your heart is probably the worst advice you could take uh, when it comes and worst advice you could follow when it comes to love because uh, love is always about what you do. It's rarely about what you feel. Uh, So if you really want to know what following Jesus looks like on the day-to-day, and if you really want to know how following Christ really impacts your school and your work and your home and all of those things, it starts with you. It starts with what you do. Uh, Look back at Deuteronomy. It says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. You, your, 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 you, yourselves, you. In the words of the great theologian and prophet Michael Jackson, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. That's, that's the summary of this verse. That it starts with you and what you do. Uh, most people believe that following Jesus is about how much he loves you, which part of it is, you know, because of his love for you, he stepped out of heaven. He decided that he would be murdered and executed on a cross, but then he would raise from the dead in order to make you new. And in response to that, you know, Jesus talks about there's some things that you should do because of my love for you and because of your love for me. Uh, Following Jesus is a lot about your decisions and your actions, much more so than uh, his were for you. There's something you should do in response to that. I'll say it this way. God won't fill what's already been full. Uh, if you're just constantly asking for God for blessing, for blessing, for blessing, but you're blessed to be a blessing. You got to start pouring yourself out so God can refill you with the new mercies that you can discover every single morning. Look at what else uh, Moses writes. Talk about the law when you're at home and when you're on the road. Write it on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He's saying in your private life and in your public life, you need to be acknowledging Christ. There's no separation with God. We're supposed to be the same way in our house as we are in God's house. Uh, We're supposed to be the same way at work as we would be if if Jesus was in the cubicle next to us. We're supposed to have the same sense of humor and use the same jokes as we would if if God or your grandma were listening uh, to you. Well, that's convicting. I know. Uh, It's very, life's simple, but it's not very, you know what I'm saying? Not very easy. Verse 8. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Translation, what you're thinking on the inside should match how you're living on the outside. Uh Uh-oh. You know, if I could somehow create some sort of machine where I could post all of your thoughts onto the screen behind me, how many of y'all ain't coming to church again? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not, we don't ever want to see that, Pastor. Me neither. Uh, The point I'm trying to make is that you can't love God with your whole being if you're segmenting your life based on your emotions. You can't follow God wholeheartedly for just when you feel like it. Due in large part because Isaiah 53 says your heart's going to lead you astray. 
none of us always do what God asks us to do. Our heart takes us like sheep somewhere we shouldn't go. According to Jesus, we're supposed to go into every single corner of our lives. Our public life, our private life, our inner life, our outer life. We should constantly be asking this question. How does loving God and loving my neighbor impact this situation? Uh, When approached in any given scenario in life, you should constantly be asking yourself, uh, what does loving God and loving my neighbor look like with where I have found myself currently? Sounds very simple. I know. Then why is it so hard? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Because there seems to be a uniquely American cultural myth that God is supposed to make our lives easier. I mean, if God's all-powerful and we uh, love God, then He's going to wave His magic wand and He's going to split the Red Sea of traffic in the morning and uh, it's going to, to cause the calories of the morning donut to just fly away. And uh, if we love Jesus and He's all-powerful, it's going to cause the demon inside of our children at the grocery store to be cast into the bacon at the deli department so we never have to see you know, them grab every single thing on the shelf and start throwing fits when they don't get it. But listen to me now. Jesus did not come to this earth to make your life easy. He came to make your life better. Uh, that's why he came, to change your life, to, to, to not say, well, this is all easy and this is how it should be done. No, no, no. Jesus came so that your life would be better. And he says, he says, not, not me, he says, in order for your life to be better, you must love. You must love. Is it okay if I hypothesize with you just for a moment? step away from Scripture. I mean, this is the only place I can get this many people into a room to listen to me speak. Uh, So if I could, you know, maybe use you as therapy here, uh, it'll be very rewarding for me and maybe not so for you, but I've got the microphone, so there's that. Um, But in order to do this muscle, how come it's so hard? I believe it it hinges upon the fact that about a hundred years ago, we started developing devices that work by themselves. And this technology that we've created literally do not require any human uh, strength. It does not require us to use our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, all all of our strength. Now, uh, some of these devices are completely necessary. And I totally, I totally get that. You know, the dishwasher, the laundry machine, I've got both of those. They work great. Uh, Her name is Laura. And if she was here, she would be very angry that I said that, so don't tell her that I said that. Uh, but we have these technology that, that, that's supposed to make life easy. You know, the, the Roomba, uh, the vacuum, you know, nobody sweeps their floor anymore. If you, if you do, you're a barbarian because they have a robot that does that now. And you don't even have to think about pulling out their broom. But uh, technology, it makes life easier and it's awesome. However, there was this promise that technology made with us. And the promise was that uh, technology would make our life easy everywhere. And in exchange for easy everywhere, technology would give us satisfaction because it will do the things that we hate. And we will love technology for it. Uh, And it works sometimes. Uh, But at some point, technology lets us down and it never lasts. And you felt this. 
because you had to get the new iPhone and you uh, had to get the new uh, car because it has new features that your old car didn't have. And, you know, you have to buy a new refrigerator. And if you get a new refrigerator, you got to buy a new microwave and a new stove because they all need to match in color. And uh, the, the refrigerator needs to talk to the microwave to tell it what it's doing. Despite the fact that the old refrigerator and the old microwave, they got along just fine before they could talk to one another. Uh, but we need all of these things in life because it promises that we'll be satisfied uh, uh, when, when they do things that we hate doing. Uh, yet as the phrase goes, all frustration is born out of unmet expectation and no technology lives up to the expectations that we place on it uh, because hear me, easy was never intended to lead to happy. That was never God's plan that easy would make you happy say, oh, I disagree, Pastor. I am most happy, you know, when life is easy. That just makes me enjoyable to be around. But let me explain why easy is actually the antithesis to God's plan for your life, okay? We were designed to be cultivators, right? Uh, When God created uh, the world and and placed man in the garden, he said to cultivate, to tend the garden, to to be fruitful, uh, create food, you know, be a good steward of the garden. And uh, when you take that into account with the fact that uh, Jesus just said the greatest commandment is to love God and love other people. So in other words, we were designed by God to create life and create love. This is what God created human beings for. Uh, create life in the sense that we're going to develop uh, instruments and tools and we're going to develop art and language and, and politics and laws and we're going to create love through the actions of loving God and loving people. Uh, as a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that we're made in God's image. Uh, and what did God do first? God created. And why did He create? He created because of love. And so that just demonstrates again that we're created for life and we're created for love. And we're not made in the image of a consuming God. We're made in the image of a producing God. And prior to this technological revolution, just to get through your day-to-day, you had to have these engaging, creating heart, soul, mind, and strength experiences. You know, meals used to take hours to prepare. And we'd all gather around together and we'd talk to each other face-to-face as the meals were being uh, prepared. And in order to go to work, you used to have to use a skill that you had honed over time. And making music meant you had to learn an instrument and you had to have rhythm, something God said, I did not need to have to to talk. So that's not for me. Uh, But satisfaction through achievement only came when you engaged your heart your soul, your mind, and your strength together. And then technology came along, and because it makes things easy, it only gives us little doses of satisfaction immediately. Because we didn't have to do something, it it gives us satisfaction right away, and now a large part in this country, it's impossible for us to have satisfaction in the long run. Uh, You know this is true. Because uh, on day two of summer break, what does every single child say? Somebody help me out. I'm bored. I'm bored. 
There's nothing to do. Did you know the word boredom isn't in any known human language until the 1850s? For 5,000 years of recorded human history, there is not a word for what it means to be bored. Now, it wasn't the fact that these folks had, you know, nothing to do and that life wasn't difficult or tedious before that. Uh, it's, it's that even in the hardship, the people were engaging their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. So they couldn't be bored. Uh, they would not define leisure in the same way we would define leisure. And so the word boredom doesn't enter into human history until roughly the 1850s in the French leisure class who had servants to do literally everything in life. Uh, Cook, clean, uh, bathe them, dress them, speak for them. I mean, everything they had a servant to do. And what was the consequence? They got bored. The only difference between them then and us now is we have something to distract ourselves. You know, we have Candy Crush, so we don't know how bored we are uh, because we can sit there for hours and, and we never know how boring our lives actually are and how boring the environment that we're living in really is. And the reason some people hate Christianity is because there's a lot of Christians who are boring. Can I preach this for a second? Y'all are just like, oh no, he's yelling at us. Um, if you're a Christian, at no point ever should you ever describe your life if you're following Jesus and loving God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, and your whole strength. You should never be able to classify your life as boring. It's impossible to be bored when you're doing the will of God. And here's why I came to church this morning to tell you the reason most people find following God to be difficult is because we've somehow in this age of distraction confused burdensome with boredom. And that's not God's plan for your life. It's not that Christianity is complicated. It's that we're distracted. And so listen to me for a uh, second. Distraction does not form us as human beings. Distractions are addictions that never lead to satisfaction. Uh, Distractions simply pass time. Uh, They never do anything to create uh, life or create love, which God said is what we're uh, supposed to be doing. Just to drive this point home, there was a study done last year and uh, researchers got thousands of teenagers together and they asked them one question. They said, if you could change anything about your parents, what would it be? Uh, They wanted to know what teenagers would change about their parents. Do you know what the number one answer was for what teenagers would change about their parents? They said, I wish my parents would spend less time on their phone and more time talking to me. That's soul crushing. If the number one thing that teenagers are saying right now in today's world is I wish my mom and dad would put down the phone. You know that the loneliest group of people in America, according to a study, is 18 to 24-year-olds? Teen suicide has risen 77% in the last 10 years. 
We're the most entertained generation in the history of the world. And another study of 20,000 young people showed that uh, they asked them, you know, how many friends do you have that you could trust with the most intimate secrets of your life? And the number one answer, zero. I don't have anybody I can trust with my secrets. I'm scared if I I tell somebody what's really going on inside my brain, uh, they'll post that on the Twitter. You know, I'll read about it on the Facebox. And uh, I don't want, I don't want my, my life being known that way. Uh, this is what we're dealing with when it comes to distraction. I also want you to know that there is no empirical evidence, zero empirical evidence that shows that technology actually helps with the development of your child. None. Done thousands of study. Uh, It doesn't help your child develop in any way because technology is not engaging their heart, soul, mind, or strength. What Deuteronomy already said was your job to do it at home all the time. Engage them. Uh, We might be back at one service next week because I'm going to go ahead and take an opportunity to offend a large swath of you uh, right now when I say the reason that you give your child a device is not for their benefit, it's for yours. Shut up. Right? I'm right there with you. (laughs) Trust me, this is very convicting uh, to me as well. But the reason Christianity is simple is not because it's about our personal comfort or our human happiness. Those things are complicated. You know, just when you think that you have figured out what's really going to make you happy and you get it, you're like, "Mm, uh, didn't work. I'm going to need something else. Uh, The reason Christianity is not easy is because it's about willful obedience to King Jesus who said, you've got to engage me on a heart, a soul, a mind, a strength, a whole being level. And that's hard because nobody likes the idea of obedience. So what can we do? How can we turn the tide here? Well, hundreds of things. I'm going to give you three just for the sake of time. Number one, choose formative experiences. Uh, You want to know how how Christ can really make a difference in your day-to-day life? Then choose formative experiences. Do things that reward creativity and reward relationship and reward engagement. Uh, This is what it means to be engaged in the heart, soul, mind, and strength in its simplest form. Engage those things. Read books, draw pictures, play board games, travel to see new things, go on a walk, play an instrument, try and learn a new language. Ruthlessly eliminate everything that asks little of you and develops little in you. If something's just distracting you, eliminate it. It's not developing anything in you. You need to get cut those things out of life. Dang, Pastor, you're being awful hard on technology. Listen, I use technology to prepare this message. I'm using technology right now to deliver this message. But technology did nothing to create in me the ability to deliver a message or prepare a message. Do you see the difference? No, do I need to go through everything again or are we still on the same page? I thought I made myself clear up until this point. Um, uh, Technology is not developing things in you in large part. 
Uh, so you need to choose formative experiences. Going back to this idea of boredom. Uh, God created us to work and to rest. Right? Genesis 2. Work the garden, tend the garden. Uh, I rested on the seventh day. You need to rest. This is what God created. Work and rest. If I can summarize it for you. But in this country, what we've decided to do in large part is trade work and rest for toil and leisure. Toil is simply fruitless labor. Just working paycheck to paycheck. uh, No engaging of my heart, my soul, my mind, or my strength in any sort of it. Uh, I'm just just gonna show up. It's gonna be mind-numbingly painful and dull, but we call that toil. And uh, leisure is just uh, simply fruitless escape from labor. I'll distract myself until I have to go back to my painful, mind-numbingly dull, horrible, horrible job and career. That's toil and leisure, but that's not why God said you've been made. You know, you've been made for work and rest. Work hard and then rest. Now, if, if we're going to understand Jesus and, and how he makes a difference in our day-to-day life, then we have to stop distracting ourselves and we have to choose formative experiences that are going to engage us and develop us as human beings. You know, I, I just have never met the person that said, you know what's really helped me in life? Uh, binging Netflix. I'm just so much healthier as a human being. Uh, I just have so much more to offer this world uh, because I can, I can scroll and I can swipe left and right. No, choose formative experiences. Number two, discover God in the ordinary. You have to discover God in the ordinary. The deepest need of your heart is not for a God that you've invented. It's for a God that you've discovered. Uh, This is what God does for us. He reveals himself progressively through Scripture. He's eternal. There's always going to be something new to discover about him. And this is what God wants for your life, to be formed and shaped in ordinary experiences. I mean, there's just never going to be the time when you open up your Bible and all of a sudden you see an angel appear right in front of you who says, I'm so glad you chose to spend time with our Lord this morning. He has sent me here to discuss some things with you. Uh, and I would like for you to, to, to realize there's something, you know, that's never going to happen. Uh, instead, we're just going to be faithful and we're going to read scripture and we're going to pray and we're going to come to church and we're going to serve and we're going to do all these things that God had asked us to do because yes, they are ordinary, but uh, we're going to live life in that way. And whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, Uh, We're going to do this for the Lord. We're going to do this because He's asked us to do it. We're going to get in a group because this is how we love people. We're going to serve. We're going to be involved because this is how we show love wholeheartedly for God. And, And yes, come expectantly. Yes, read your Bible expectantly. Yes, come to church expectantly. Yes, pray expectantly. But listen to me. If God always lived up to your expectations, then he could never exceed them, right? Uh, And so we need God to sometimes just blow our minds. And so we've got to find the ordinary in life and find God in those times. Uh, So uh, we're just going to look for God there in the ordinary. Last thing, number three, become what you wish other people were. 
you're going to love God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, then you have got to become what you wish other people were. Uh, If you're a Christian and you feel this little impulse in your spirit uh, where you think to yourself, oh, it would be nice if, guess what? Uh, That's the Holy Spirit saying you should fill that void. If you're driving through your neighborhood and you feel a little impulse in you like, man, I wish somebody would pick up all this trash everybody's throwing around. Guess what? (laughs) That's you. If you're at school or at work and in the cafeteria, you're like, man, I wish somebody would just sit with all these weirdos over here. They're like, uh, guess what? You know, if you're out in uh, shopping and you see the homeless guy and you think to yourself, man, I wish it would be nice if somebody gave that guy some money. Guess what? This is the whole, you know, this is not the devil saying, hey, you should be nice to somebody. That's not how it works. This is the Holy Spirit living in you, asking you to make a difference. How different would our world look if people's attitude was, I will, instead of, I wish these people. Uh, How different would the world look? This is what is called must love. This is how it plays out. What does it look like for you to be sitting at work, whatever you do, and, and think to yourself, man, I wish somebody would, and then you just did it. If it was legal, okay, I feel like I need to throw that in. I've met some of you before, so if it if it's legal, do, do those things, you know? I mean, how different would it look if, if you're in your neighborhood and you think to yourself, you know, I wish our neighborhood would feel more like a family. And then you just invited everybody over, you grilled some hot dogs, and you got to know people, and you made your neighborhood look more like a family. This is what life is. Become what you wish other people were. That'd be nice if somebody did that for you, wouldn't it? So do it for other people. I think it's Gandhi who said, uh, be the change that you want to see in the world. Do that. Be the change. Lest you think, well, I could never do that, Pastor. I'm new to this whole Christianity thing. Uh, uh, God doesn't need you to get your act together before you serve. God's helping you get your act together as you serve. Uh, So just go and do. That's the beauty of this. This command is not predicated on your ability to do anything. It's based on God's ability and working through you. That's why he sent his spirit into your life. If you get nothing else I say, you have to get this. Stop distracting yourself and make a difference in something that matters. Biggest fear is that you'll go through life uh, and not fail, but you'll succeed at something that doesn't matter. Does God enjoy movies and technology? Yes and amen. These are good gifts from God for all people to enjoy. But if they're distracting you from what matters most, then it's not working. If you're not finding experiences in life and the bulk of your life is not heart-forming, soul-forming, mind-forming, strength-forming, listen to me, you're doing it wrong. God wants you to engage the world that he's placed you in. It's no accident that you're in this room today. It's no accident that you're in uh, this time in history. God's put you here to make a difference. Amen, somebody. So do that. Go make a difference. Love God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole being. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Life is simple. It's just not easy. Those things are hard. Let's just all pray together and ask for God's help. God, thank you again so much for being here with us in this moment. We love you. We praise you for the good gifts that you have given to us, including technology. Oh God, we're just asking for you to do what only you can do though and speak to our heart, speak to our soul. Help us realize where we need to to cut some things out because they're not forming us as human beings. They're not helping advance your gospel to this earth, which is why we are here. God, help us communicate your love for the people around us by doing because love is always an action. If you're here this morning as we continue to pray and you've never followed through on this action to to trust God as your Savior, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Because the first command is that you must love God with your whole being. And if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ yet, uh, nothing else matters in life. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Uh, Would you just in your heart pray along with me and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've lived distracted. I'm sorry I've chosen my way over your way. I'm sorry I've sinned. But I believe in Jesus. I believe in his power. I believe he died. But I believe he rose. And because of that, there's newness of life. Thank you for restoring life. Help me live for you. God, thank you for the opportunity for new life. That's why we're here today, because we believe in you. Encourage us, equip us, shape us, mold us into the person and and image of Jesus as we leave here today. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful, beautiful name. Amen.